that it isn't about I am going to tell you how you should change. It's about what can we as an industry do to change and how can I as an academic help you to see what you could do on your farm, how you can do it, how you can make it economically possible. Welcome to the MacVet podcast, the show that talks about communication, cows and coffee. I'm your host, Fiona McGilvery, and today I'm talking to the consultant Jude Capper, who's a professor at Harper Adams University. Jude, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us and thank you for bearing with me with the technical adjustments before we went live. (laughs) (laughs) no problem at all it's it's a pleasure to be here thank you for having me on the show fabulous well I am really excited to be having a chat with you this morning um Jude would you mind describing what it is that you do oh my goodness well I mean we've only got about half an hour so I mean (laughs) I'm not entirely sure that I can fit it into that but um so for Nominally half of my time, I'm a livestock sustainability consultant. So I've been doing that for about uh, 10 years or so now, Um, initially in Montana in the United States and then um, moved back to the UK about eight years ago. Uh, For the other nominally half of my time, I am the ABP Chair and Professor of Sustainable Beef and Sheep Production at Harper Adams University in Shropshire. And with both of them, I say nominally, because as as I think everybody knows, when you're part time, it expands to feel more than part time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also got a, a couple of other roles. I'm the treasurer of the National Beef Association. I am the um, chair of the Root Panel for Agriculture, Environment and Animal Care and vice chair of the Green Apprenticeships Panel at the Institute for Apprenticeships and Technical Education. So working a lot with with um, trying to further those, particularly for our sector. And I, I also uh, am the manager for an under, under nine rugby um, rugby team. So that takes up a lot of uh, weekend time as well. Wow. As you say, that sounds far from part time. (laughs) Or if that's part time, we we need to redefine. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like you're certainly keeping very busy. Um, So what led you into this, these two roles, I guess, this sort of split into those two main sort of areas? Well, in some ways, it was slightly random because unlike many people working in agriculture, I don't have an ag background at all. I grew up uh, about two miles from the centre of Oxford. Um, My parents had no real connection to agriculture and we got a horse when I was nine. And so that led to sort of hacking around going, oh, what's that crop? Why is that one yellow? Why is that one green? Why are those sheep bigger than those other sheep? So went to Arthur Adams, um, fell in love with everything agriculture and everything animal science, did a PhD there, went over to the States to do a postdoc at Cornell University. Um, And that's where people first started thinking about uh, carbon footprint and dairy production and beef production. So my work at Harper Adams is very much still with carbon footprint, um, sustainability, economics, social impact, you know, all of the things that um, tie into sustainability. And my consultancy work came about in the States after actually working at Washington State University. And it's primarily research based. Um, so doing 
modelling work looking at, for example, if we improve growth rate in beef or if we use a particular technology in dairy, for example, what are the impacts from a carbon land use and resource use point of view, um, but also doing an awful lot of talks to anybody and everybody. So I was in Brazil at a conference uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yesterday I was at uh, the University of Nottingham doing a postgraduate research seminar and then at a Young Farmers Club um, agriculture panel in the evening. So just talking to lots and lots of groups about all sorts of topics, but all tied around sustainability. And I think that's really interesting to hear because Again, I guess a lot of researchers don't necessarily uh, have the opportunity or, or take the opportunity to try and talk to such a, a broad audience. Would that be fair? I think it is. And I think I'm really lucky that 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 people tend to come to me and ask me to talk, which is, you know, absolutely lovely. Um, I think it almost becomes a little bit like a performance. You know, I can feel absolutely exhausted going on and think, why am I in the you know back of beyond about to talk to, you know, five people about this? But I think it almost does become that sort of performance aspect of it. And I think it's really important, and this is not to say that I'm great at doing talks or you know a a anything like that. I would never say that. Um, but I was talking to a to a young researcher about a month ago, and she was really keen to get into this um, this type of work and to talk more to farmers and to explain why carbon's important and greenhouse gases are important. And she said the problem is there are so many academics who have what I call pointy-headed syndrome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I had to laugh because I was like, you know, I know exactly what you mean. There are so many brilliant, brilliant people out there. But when mm -hmm. they try to explain their topic, within two minutes, I'm completely lost. Um, mm -hmm. So that communication bit, I think, is really key. Because back in the past, we used to think, well, I've published a paper and it's in an academic journal, so my job's done, right? You know, <laughs> bada bing. And now, no, it's 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 so much, so much more complicated like that. And we've really got to get better messaging across to everybody within the UK and um, and indeed the world, I think. Mm, that's really well said. Yeah. So on that area, then, how do you feel you have been able to achieve that sort of level of engagement where, as you said, people are coming to you asking for you to, to speak at these events to these different groups? Is it something you've kind of uh, actively gone out to develop your skills in this area? Do you kind of reflect back on what was good? Are you sort of gathering feedback from these events? Oh, that's a good question, because I have to admit, I have a real hatred for like back in the day when I was at the University of Worcester a long time ago, when I was writing up my PhD, um, I started doing a PGCE and you had to teach and then write a reflective piece on how you thought it went and how you would improve it um, next time. And I, I hated it. I hated it so much. I didn't yeah. do this, this, this touchy feely. How do I feel about this? It just, it yeah. just literally made my skin crawl. I hated it. Mm -hmm. um, so no, I don't do that in any sort of, um, uh, you know, targeted way. And I know an awful lot of it depends on how I feel on the day. Although, mm. as I say, I've done talks 
that begin when I've got a terrible hangover, for example, because I've been at a conference, it's been a really late night, you know, not that I've done this for quite a while, I have to say, because now my hangovers are so bad that I can't do it. But, you know, yeah. back in the day, I go, oh, gosh, I feel absolutely dreadful. And the minute I get out there, all the energy just sort of floods in and I'm, you know, jumping up and down and waving my arms around. Um, and it feeds off the audience too. And mm. Some audiences where people are sort of smiling and nodding and laughing at the jokes really help that. Mm -hmm. And others where you've got people just sort of staring at you with that face, like, why are you here? It, 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 it can go a bit downhill. Mm -hmm. So I do, I do, I guess I do subconsciously reflect and subconsciously say that slide didn't didn't work quite so well or mm -hmm. that joke doesn't work so well when it's an audience of you know older farmers or younger students and it's quite depressing when i refer back to sort of programs from the 1990s for example and then realize that most of the people in the audience weren't born um <laughs> when i was talking last night i uh I referred to going to Sheep 2000, which is, of course, you know, back in 2000, and then mm -hmm. went, wow, then most of you were not even born in 2000, which, which again, made me feel really old. So I do reflect, um, yeah. and I always try and improve, and I, some of the slides I use, honestly, I've probably been using for 10 years, but every single talk I do, I think about the audience, I think about the messages, I try to put in new stuff, different stuff, things that I think are important for these people versus just doing the same blanket talk to every single thing I go to mm -hmm. and I have had feedback from people who go I've heard you talk four times and I go so why <laughs> so why are you still why are you still here the fourth time and they say but you include different things every time mm. and that's what makes it interesting for me and I and and like that really helps to make me feel like I'm doing it right I guess mm-hmm so like you say, I, it sounds as though you're kind of getting that instantaneous feedback, maybe, so I think you mentioned subconsciously from the audience. And, and mm -hmm. as you say, maybe you're sort of processing that internally for, for future talks. So that's, that's interesting. Thanks, Jude, for sharing that. Um, could you defer, define the term sustainability? Because I know you've mentioned it already, and obviously that's a big part of what you do. I just think it's helpful sometimes just to get a bit of context uh, and definition. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's important to understand that almost everybody defines it in a slightly different way. And it's on every menu, every headline, every news article nowadays, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But yep. uh, how I define it, particularly for agricultural systems, is that it's a balance between economic viability, which of course for many farming systems is still and is always gonna be the main issue. Because if you don't make a profit now, then in five or 10 years time, you may not be in business. Uh, it's about, between therefore the economics, environmental responsibility, so caring for the air, the land, the water, climate, etc., and social acceptability. So um, what we do now, is it acceptable to the consumer? Could it be acceptable to the consumer? And if it's not acceptable to the consumer, how long are we going to keep doing it for before we have to change or we have to change the consumer, as it were? And so mm -hmm. balancing those three things can be really tricky because things that balance in the short term don't always balance in the long term. And I think it's really important to realize that sustainability isn't like climbing a mountain, you know? You don't get there, put a flag in the top and go, that's it, I'm done, ka-ching. 
because what's sustainable now with respect to economics, for example, with the fertiliser price having gone through the roof, isn't the same as what was sustainable two years ago, five years ago, uh, 10 years ago. So it's a bit of a moving target, which does make it really difficult for everybody, I think, because we've continuously got to be changing and improving and doing slightly different stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's nicely summed up. Thank you. And I was reading an article uh, that you'd uh, given or, or an article that uh, gave an overview of your work recently. And I think you were mentioning about behaviour change um, mm -hmm. and having more engagement with, uh, as you say, end users with farmers rather than sort of my my take was that it was sort of rather than us just sort of telling them this is what we need to do. We need to understand what influences behaviour. How do you think we are with that? And and do you, I, I also question is, do we need to sort of reflect back on ourselves as people sort of trying to advise on behaviour change? Do maybe we need to change behaviours? That's a really good question. And I was just saying to somebody yesterday that I would really like to delve deeper into the sort of psychological and social um, aspects that make us all behave in very, very different ways. I was uh, travelling to a um, conference down in Bristol uh, a few weeks ago now and I was at Bristol Temple Meads and I came to the um, exit from the platform and at Bristol Temple Meads you go down from almost every platform and so the stairs had been split into two halves left and right you were supposed to go down the left you weren't supposed to go down the right that there, there, there was like a no entry sign on the right to allow the people coming up onto the platform to do so and I found it really really interesting that it was it was absolutely packed it was about half state in the morning you know it's complete chaos there was nobody coming up on the right hand side and the platform um at the top was relatively empty because the train was terminating there but still everybody was queuing and shuffling forwards very slowly to go down that left hand side so even though there was no sanction there was no if you go down the right hand side you're going to be penalized fined arrested etc etc just our sort of cultural um tradition made us all go well it says I should go to the left so I'm going to go to the left you know really slowly even though in that queue people were obviously getting sort of irritable and shoving each other and going come on come on I have to get my train um I'll leave you to guess whether I went down the left or or the right hand side no one's actually dared to guess yet uh, which I find interesting but it, it it did make me think you know, we talk an awful lot about the things we've got to do on farm and how we should change A, B, C and D. And particularly as as academics, as I am, I do a PowerPoint and I say, right, we need to do all of these things. You should change this and this and this and this and this. And it's difficult to actually know whether farmers go away and do it, first of all, or if they take it on board or if they stand there and... When I was in the States, for example, um, up to about eight or nine years ago now, obviously I was younger then, um, I tended to do my talks in a, in a sort of, not like a little black dress, but a, you know, a black dress as opposed to a suit. And uh, I had a lot of ranchers come up to me and I won't do the accent because I can't, but they basically said, I saw you standing at the front and I thought, what can this girl from England tell me about beef production you know I know everything about beef production I've been in beef for the last 40 years 50 years whatever it might be and so 
the really nice feedback that I had from them was, but then when you started talking and explaining it and talking about it in a sort of sensible, this is what we've got to do and we as an industry need to change and here are some tips that anybody can do on their farm, regardless of whether you've got beef or dairy or pigs or poultry, big herd, small flock, etc. That really helps. So I think it's about, we've got, Part of it is, even though academia has traditionally been about sort of lecturing to people from the front, it is this is such a big topic in terms of sustainability that it isn't about I am going to tell you how you should change. It's about what can we as an industry do to change and how can I as an academic help you to see what you could do on your farm, how you can do it, how you can make it economically possible, mm -hmm. um, and then to implement it. And so we've been doing work at the moment with with ABP, carbon footprinting farms, and beef farm, sheep farms, and beef and sheep farms, um, and just looking at the data to see what farmers can do, and then getting feedback from those farmers and trying to advise those farmers on, okay, so maybe using more byproduct feeds isn't an option but have you thought about trying to cut your age at first calving even if it's only by two weeks or a month for example and just making those incremental changes and I think if we bring people on board and make it clear that we're trying to help and improve everybody then we seem to get a lot more positive change than just sort of bursting in and going right I'm here to tell you what to do and you will jolly well do it, which is sort of the approach we've taken in the past a little bit, I think. And I can imagine you are a massively positive role model for other people trying to, you know, support your work, follow your work or even work in different areas, because I think you are excellent at getting your message across. And as you say, engaging with that audience and what a lovely story explaining from, you know, this chap's original impression of, of a you know, as you say, a, an attractive lady thinking, gosh, she's so disconnected from what, what my world is, but then actually listening to what you had to say um, uh, and coming to tell you. I think that's a lovely story to, to share. Thank you. Thank you. What do you enjoy most about your work? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I was talking to a, a dairy farmer. This, this was about three or four years ago now. And he said to me, I literally start every day with a smile on my face. And if other people have said that, I'd have gone, oh, that's so corny, for goodness sake. But this guy does grin, you know, all the time. He has a huge smile. He's a lovely, lovely man. And in his case, I thought I can see that that's absolutely true. And I'm not going to pretend that I enjoy marking exam papers, for example, you know, I don't think anybody actually enjoys that. Or, you know, sitting in those meetings where you go, why are we still talking about this? We've been talking about this for 18 months and nothing's changed. Um, but I generally enjoy almost all bits of my job. I, I, I enjoy the travel. I've got to go to some amazing places over the years, which has been absolutely brilliant. I love data. I'm very data driven. It sounds terribly, awfully nerdy, but nothing makes me happier than finding some bit of data that I've been looking for for months on the you know, average transport distance of cattle across the UK, for example. Those sort of things that you think should be out there, but are very seldom out there. Um, 
I really enjoy the research and the mathematical modeling stuff that I do because again I love that data and that logic and that sense of achievement where you check the numbers and they are all actually right and you can sort of see how your hypothesis has turned into a really nice story and on the sort of creative side I really enjoy creating all of my PowerPoint slides and stuff and I know that sounds really sort of boring but I really hate the PowerPoint slides where it's four bullet points because I'm like, you could just read them, couldn't you? Like, what's the point in in sort of putting up four bullet points? And I do feel s sorry for people who sometimes say, I couldn't come to your talk, but can I have a copy of the slides? And, and I go, yeah, ab absolutely. And then I think, well, the fourth and fifth slide are a picture of a ground nesting bird and a picture of a dung beetle. So how are they going to have any clue what I actually talked about? from those pictures, you know. So I, th I think I have the sort of nice opportunity to balance the very data-driven stuff with the very creative stuff. And then having the opportunity to work with, with IFATE, the Institute for Friendships and Technical Education, which again, I've been doing for about four years now, has been really interesting. Um, having been very, very academic, you know, just getting more involved in the world in the world of um, apprenticeships and and the new um, T levels as well now, and helping to direct and shape them so that we can make sure that the next generation of apprenticeships and T level students absolutely have the skills that we need in our industry is really fulfilling. And it's really nice to work so closely with some really good colleagues on those panels. Um, that's really great as well. So I so I know it sounds very, very Pollyanna-ish. And believe me, I'm flying to Bulgaria on Monday. My flight is at 7 a.m. out of Stansted, which means I'm going to be leaving home at 3 a.m. and it's going to be a complete and utter nightmare. Um, so there are times when I'm as miserable as sin. But generally, I genuinely really enjoy what I do. I think that's fantastic. And uh, yeah, it sounds fabulous. And I always enjoy watching your social media posts, actually, about uh, which names you're given on, on uh, coffee mugs, etc. Oh, yes. and, <laughs> and it seems you always seem to make a, a, an effort to maybe go for a run as well, which I think is great to explore the areas you're visiting as well. So, uh, yeah, fantastic. Bulgaria. What about some of the challenges you face in your work? Oh, time. Time is absolutely the biggest one. It's, you know, it's just time, 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 time. Um, I am guilty, as are so many of us, of, you know, saying yes to almost everything. Um, mm. Because I have learned over, you know, all of my years in the industry that you never know what's going to lead to something else. You know, you, you, you go and do a talk at a relatively small conference somewhere, you know, and sort of five years later, someone says, well, I saw you talk here and, and like now would really like you to come and talk here. And you go, oh, OK. So it was worth going to somewhere in the back of beyond to 20 people to talk to mm -hmm. sort of thing. So I do tend to say yes to too many things, um, which does make it really difficult to balance my time and that 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 is probably my biggest challenge I think um I have a a daughter who's nine she's absolutely brilliant I do my best not to work on weekends but that does mean I work quite a lot of evenings and stuff and just trying to balance you know 
life and trying to get out and have a run, for example, and all of those things with the fact that I'm going, why did I say yes to these 15 things that all have to be done in 10 days time, you know, is a big challenge. Um, and at some point I will probably fall over from too much caffeine and too much work. But at the moment it seems to be working. So, you know, I'll just keep going. It sounds like uh, there's almost there's no sort of um, definition between work and non-work. It seems like everything is, does that make sense? Sort of uh, just a lovely get up in the day, a lovely challenge, you know, a lovely sort of opportunity to, to speak to people about the work you're doing and, and share your messages, which, yeah, sounds amazing. Do you have any sort of role models, Jude? Oh, that's a really good question. Ah, I know this sounds awful, but I can't think of anybody specifically. Um, with the exception of probably Dale Bauman, who was the um, who was my first sort of boss um, as a postdoc at Cornell University. So, to give a bit of background, Dale is hugely accomplished. Has had you know hundreds of PhD students and and postdocs and so on and so on. He he uh, he retired about ooh must be eight, nine, maybe even 10 years ago now. Um, he was absolutely the sort of father of all the work into recombinant bovine somatotropin in the States, a lot of work on fatty acid um, analysis and synthesis. And um, when I was just writing up my PhD, I went to uh, do a talk at the British Society of, of Animal Science meetings. Now, bearing in mind that Dale was based in the States, I was doing probably only the third talk that I'd ever done at a proper conference. And um, Liam Sinclair from Harper Adams came to me and said, just so you know, Del Bowman's at this conference. And I went, oh, you know, this is the, this is the guy who knows more about my topic than I am, you know, ever going to know. So I thought, OK, it's fine. I'm about to do my talk. He isn't in the audience. You know, this is this is going to be great. So I start doing my talk within the first minute he walks in and he sits in the front row and I'm going, oh no, you know, my life is over. This is the God of everybody who knows anything about what I'm doing. And I'm here as a PhD student now feeling like I know absolutely nothing at all. Um, and he came up to me afterwards. He was so nice, such a lovely, lovely, lovely guy. Gave me the opportunity, as I say, to go and do a postdoc at Cornell. And I learned so much from him. He he works incredibly, incredibly hard, but has a huge family, has a passion for train sets um, and, and did manage to, to get that really good work life balance. But again, as you just said, I think because not because his life was taken over by work because it wasn't at all. But 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 because he was so passionate about what he did, it just became part of his life in a way that going to work in an office and coming back again at five I think is a sort of separate compartment for so many people um so he taught me an awful lot in the sort of two and a half years that I was at Cornell probably more than sort of any other boss or mentor ever has um so that's been brilliant but then also people like so people who are who like me are single parents, for example. So a huge amount of um, admiration for Sarah Tomlinson, who you had on the podcast um, 
a few weeks ago now. You know, she's ab- absolutely brilliant. I think she's fabulous. She's achieved so much. And like me, it is tricky when you're a single parent with younger kids. So just that balance, um, anyone who can do that is, you know, doing really well, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nicely said. As you said, there's a lot of people out there that you can... Um admire for for the challenges they face and, and how they approach them and as you mm-hmm. say sarah was it was was great to talk about as well so i'm intrigued to uh find out a little bit of background about how you came up with your consultancy name jude if that's all right bobby diva if that's oh, yeah. pronounced correctly <laughs> no 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 it's perfect so it was completely random really so i joined twitter in i think 2011 or something like that really early in the sort of era of Twitter and some sort of slightly sarky person in the States had obviously not liked the work that I was doing at the time on RBST or bovine growth hormone and so had termed me a lacto lacto lobbyist so I had a t-shirt made saying lacto lobbyist so that was my Twitter name for the first two or three years. And then when I started working on beef and sheep and, you know, other uh, other livestock as well, and bearing in mind that that, 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 that I wasn't actually um, lobbying at all, I thought that that wasn't really appropriate. So a uh, friend that um, sadly died back in uh, 2012, I think it was, 2012, 2013, um, he was at Penn State working in the same sort of area within meat science. And he said, well, you're such a diva, you should just be bovi diva. So povi for bovine, obviously, and then diva because I throw my arms about and get a bit enthusiastic when I do talks and things. And it just it just stuck. And it seems to it seems to suit me because you know on occasion I can be a bit uh enthusiastic and loud and diva-ish and bovie for cattle so yeah Mm. it's just uh, been with me ever since oh I love that thanks Jude it it was something that intrigued me and I thought well now's my chance to ask you (laughs) 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 have you got any examples where you felt you've had your best results oh it sounds repetitive, but obviously, as an academic, it's always nice to publish papers, you know, and go to fancy conferences and talk to a thousand people and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I do find it, given that I don't have an agricultural background, you know, I can't say, well, my dad used to do this with the cattle and, well, my grandpa used to do this with the sheep. I think what actually pleases me most is is examples like like the one I gave earlier, when people look at me either now or in the past and say, well, what's she going to tell me with her PowerPoint slides? You know, how is this going to help me? And then I do a talk or I consult with them or whatever it might be. And afterwards they say, oh, actually, that all makes sense. Now I can see that perhaps I could do A, B and C. And and that's really helped me to do that. Um, and I haven't really worked out what the common factor is between the various people who've told me that, you know. I think it I think it may just be that it's hit them on the right day or the right timing or when they were thinking about making a change, possibly. So I actually do value, I think, those 
one-to-ones where you feel like you've really made a change to an individual person versus the sort of perhaps more prestigious like i just did a talk to you know two thousand people um because it's actually having that tangible change that i think matters more than more than the number of people i've talked to potentially 99 percent of which haven't haven't been listening or have been on twitter or or have just decided that they're not going to change stuff lovely that's nicely put and i wonder it's interesting listening to you this morning explaining how what you just said you know it's lovely to hear people share with you that they feel that's really kind of resonated with them or that's that's you know they, they found that really valuable i wonder because you haven't got the agricultural background you must have a very high level of empathy to be able to connect with people who you haven't grown up with or been part of that if that makes sense would that be a fair reflection yeah i guess i guess it does make sense actually which is funny because i tend to think of myself as not necessarily a very empathetic person um certainly not necessarily a very sympathetic person i was in a traffic queue the other day and (laughs) i think i think the the air around me was pretty blue because I was getting so irritated with the fact I had to get the conference and I was late and, you know, all these people are in my way. Um, I guess it's because I do enjoy, you know, all all of the things about the countryside, which sounds like a very facile answer, but I do truly have a passion for the agricultural industry. And I think if you've got that passion for something, regardless of whether you've been in it since you were born or whether you've just come into it. I was on this panel last night, as I say, to the um, Leicestershire and Rutland Young Farmers. And there was a guy on the panel called Rich, Rich Summers, who had worked for years as a chef and within the meat industry and was just getting into agriculture. And even though he's only been in it, you know, for a relatively short time and hasn't, you know, been to agricultural college or done an apprenticeship or sort of any of that stuff. He was so passionate about it. And I think it's that passion, which is often an overused word, and I think I've used it about five times now in about the last two minutes. But I think if you've got that, people see that and they value that and they know that you care about the industry or, or or the topic or their farm and that makes it more attractive and it makes it easier for people to take it on board whereas if you stand there and sort of just say well you should be doing this you be doing this you're doing this with no without it looking like you care about the outcomes you're just saying that you should do this because this is part of your job I think that turns people off mm, that's a very good point made and there's definitely no penalty for saying the word passion multiple times (laughs) on this show for sure (laughs) what would you say your proudest achievements been oh uh it's my daughter it just is she's brilliant um oh god i'm gonna cry now sorry jude (laughs) no 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 you're fine It, 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 it is though she is she is magnificent She's nine. She is. Breathe, breathe. She is so clever. 
she is again really passionate about what she does she's mm-hmm. got a huge sort of social conscience which i find really interesting she gets really cross when she sees her friends um being bullied or when she thinks that the teachers aren't being fair to one of her friends she gets really cross about that which i think is really really cool um i'm probably a little bit biased because i'm a single parent so therefore we've been together you know pretty much non-stop for nine nine and a half years now um she came to every single conference and meeting that i ever did from the moment she was born until she was about two um but yeah i mean it you know none of the rest of it matters ultimately does it i mean mm. work's nice money's nice lots of powerpoint slides are nice you know going to conferences are nice but yeah she's brilliant she is she is absolutely the the best thing totally mm. best thing and is she showing any um interest in following in sort of the world of agriculture or is it too early to say at the moment <laughs> i would love to say yes and when she was littler, she would always say that I I am going to be an animal scientist, mummy. I'm going to work with you. I'm going to work in your company and like I will be your second in command. And now she's got a bit older. She is more into I'm going to be an actress, but also an international rugby player. And, and I think I'll be a teacher sort of three days a week. So she so she's totally following me in that at the moment i think it's a teacher in the week an international rugby player on the weekends and then an artist most of the rest of the time so she's going to do about three or four jobs within one week apparently but uh, i think we'll see she is very good at science and she's very good at maths but like me she reads i mean so this sounds like I'm boasting and it isn't boasting at all. Um, but I love to read, absolutely love to read. So I set myself a target on Goodreads. It's just like a book app every year. Um, and so this year, my my target is, a, is 135 books in the year. And I'm eight over my target now, which must mean I've read, what are we, June? I don't know, about 75 odd books so far this year. But my daughter, if anything, reads even more than me to the point where her teacher pulled me aside on Tuesday and said, um, can I have a word? She's actually reading when she's not supposed to be reading now. So so if you just ask her not to read quite so much, you know, so I don't know whether that'll take her into writing or being an author or something in future. We'll see. But uh, yeah, she loves to read. Oh, brilliant. And how lovely that she's always thinking of, of, of sort of slightly different things, not sort of fixated on, on sort of one or two parts. It's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting to see where she where she ends up. But oh, fab. Absolutely. And also, you'll have to share the reading list, Jude. I'm uh, blown <laughs> away will. by that. Uh, <laughs> by that target. Gosh. Um, where do you see yourself in the next sort of five or ten years? Oh, this is like the classic interview question, isn't it? I would like your job, please, person yeah. who's interviewing me. Um, probably... We can edit it out afterwards if you fancy. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine, don't worry. Um, it sounds very boring, but probably doing vaguely the same stuff. You know, I don't think I'm going to become an international rugby player because I'm not very good at catching a ball, for example. Um, but hopefully, almost certainly, moving on to whatever the needs of the industry are. So if I look back five or 10 years, five years ago, I was doing similar stuff, but at that point I wasn't involved with Institute for Apprenticeships and I wasn't yet at Half Adams. Um, 10 years ago, I was 
doing similar stuff, but I was at Washington State University still, I believe. Um, so doing the same things, but I think we're going to see, I think hopefully in five or 10 years time, we'll have at least worked out how to accurately and consistently measure and assess carbon and have worked out what we can do on farm about that. And I say that with the recognition that we've been talking about this since about 2006 and we haven't got it sorted yet. So I may be being overly optimistic, but I think there'll be more moving into looking at, um, I'll be looking at stuff about biodiversity, for example, and land use change and water use. And hopefully it's my intention to have a better handle on those sort of social and behavioral metrics, both in terms of changing farmer behavior, but also looking at what makes consumers tick a little bit more because we know that people buy on price and brand and convenience but if all that's equal what chooses people what what um encourages people to choose you know beef versus pork or a low carbon label versus a fair trade label for example and all of that stuff i think would be fascinating so it'd be nice to collaborate with some social scientists to uh, get into that area a little bit more mm. That sounds exciting. That would be really fascinating to to hear more about. Now, I suspect I know the answer to this next question, but mm -hmm. uh, what would your favourite cow breed be? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know whether you do know the answer. So oh, You see, never assume. It's true. So, well, that, so <laughs> let me put you on the spot. What do you think it might be? I was wondering if it might be jerseys. Ah, interesting. <laughs> Because I did refer to jerseys last night as well in the talk I was doing. I do love jerseys. Mm -hmm. um, I did some work on jerseys back uh, when I was at Washington State University. And I was lucky enough on the back of that to go on, on a couple of the jersey tours. So we went to Australia, went to New Zealand on, on, on another one. So I've seen some really beautiful jersey cattle all across the world. Really, really, really love them. So they are my 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 second favourite cattle. What I actually love, um, and there's not many of them in the UK, although I know that Paul Westaway has some, are Murray Greys, type of beef uh, cattle. Yes. Actually, from Australia, funnily enough. I, they're just so pretty. Mm. And I know that sounds really like, oh, look at the pretty cattle, aren't they lovely? But, but, but they are just gorgeous, yeah. Mm -hmm. So actually, my sort of obviously quite secret favourite would be the yeah. Murray Grey, but second would definitely be the Jersey. Ah, oh, well, it's you've heard it here first, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, excellent. And um, uh, the next, you know, the final sort of point on our, on our three C's is obviously coffee. And mm -hmm. again, I'm assuming you are a, a, a coffee drinker, <laughs> having seen oh, your goodness. various different names on Starbucks cups, which I mm -hmm. find hilarious. <laughs> But yeah, so where would you put yourself on the coffee sort of snobometer level? Uh, instant Ooh. at one end and freshly ground beans. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that that is that's a really good question. So instant people who know me well would say that I hate instant. I will drink instant because yeah. sometimes there's no option. I mean, <laughs> I'm I am never going to make somebody feel bad by saying yes i'd love a coffee but not one of those ones you know sure. yes. um so not really a fan of instant interestingly and this sounds like a plug for it and it isn't really i'm but apart from that i'm sort of mid-range probably because my favorite coffees are actually the ones that my 
machine at home makes, which is one of these. It's a it's a Bosch Tassimo, so it isn't like a super grinding beans you know, blah, blah, blah one. Um, mm-hmm. But it just, I think, makes really nice coffee. And dare I say it, I think it makes nicer coffee than the ones I pick up in Starbucks. Now, mm-hmm. I think that's because Starbucks is not as homogenous as we think. I was at uh, San Paolo Airport um, a couple of weeks ago. In fact, that was one of those pictures that I posted on Twitter <laughs> with the funny names on. Yeah. Um, and the guy at the next table, who I think was from the States, picked up his coffee, drank a bit, and then just tossed it down and said, that's the worst coffee I've ever had, and just sort of stormed off. Um, but I prefer the ones that my machine makes at home, which we do live in a very hard water area, so it may be something to do with the water as well somehow, but actually, yeah, those are my favourite. You see, it, it's not just that simple question, is it? You know, do you drink coffee or not? This is what I oh, love. Yeah. It's, it's hearing the whole, <laughs> yeah, the background again to the coffee. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> Whereas if you had said, do you drink tea? I'd be like, no, no, vile stuff, horrible, never. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as I say, I've, uh, over the uh, different interviews, I have had to be a little bit more uh, um, open to, as you say, the idea of tea. And uh, so, you know, we're kind of maybe caffeine is, is the way to sort of level it. Oh, yeah, but, there um, we go. Yeah, Perfect. Yeah. Jude, is there anything else you'd like to share that you think would be important for listeners to hear? Um, I think just simply take all the opportunities you can. Um, that's what I've done and I'll leave it to you as to whether you think that's worked or not. Um, but certainly an awful lot of the most fun things, some of the nicest people I've worked with, some of the collaborations, etc., have come about because I've just gone to a meeting or I've gone to a conference that otherwise I might not have done or I've said yes to working on a project which perhaps I shouldn't do because I've got so much on but um, and it's all led to a really nice mixture of stuff going on so um, I think yeah just say yes to every opportunity um, that you can obviously I mean don't overwork yourself completely and, and like go completely mad but I think we've often got a tendency to stick with the normal stuff that we do and go oh no well I couldn't do that thing or or that's too far away or I'm too busy or I don't know anything about I don't know freshwater trout or whatever um but yeah it it is astounding what opportunities can can occur and can come up and what brilliant places we can go to as a result that's absolutely beautiful I couldn't have sum that up better thank you yeah excellent (laughs) advice well jude it's been absolutely fantastic i've loved talking with you today thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and experiences my pleasure thank you so much it's been fab thanks so much for listening to this episode please follow or subscribe to the show so you can join me next time when i'll be talking more about communication cows and coffee